Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Talking of which, you said, what are you up to in the next few years of your life? So I was Jamie's battering ram and <laughs> I actually got death threats delivered by a certain well-known Twizzler manufacturer mm. um, and they said if you don't stop stop knocking our Twizzlers basically they'll knock me off oh and I God. just thought and that was delivered to my home Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast The show about food lifestyle, medicine and how to improve your health today I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. I love hearing people's stories. It's one of my favorite things to do in the podcast to dive deep into the history of what led to people doing what they do now. And myself and Jane were connected by Prulith, who you've heard on the podcast, you've seen definitely on TV. I've done a TV show with her myself. And she said, you really need to speak to Jane. Her products are incredible and her story is amazing as well. And what you're going to hear today is all about Jane Clark, her career that has spanned three decades within nutrition the shocking stories about what you what what you're up against when you challenge the powerful food industry i was really taken aback by some of the stuff uh, that happened while she was involved in jamie's school meals her personal health struggles with endometriosis starting the uk's first private dietitian's clinic working with the likes of david beckham her experience with dementia and her dad and the inspiration behind her new line of products, which I think is so well needed. And anyone that works in healthcare or care home settings or working with the vulnerable will understand why this product is just so needed as well. She's a dietitian and cordon bleu chef with more than 30 years experience in the nutrition industry. And she's also authored nine best-selling books and worked with a number of people to bring about social change. And she's got this incredible mindset and passion that she uses to provide solutions to what she's currently doing right now, which is undernourishment and 
empowering and inspiring those who are vulnerable or facing health challenges to look after their health in an easy way. And you'll hear a bit about that later on in the podcast too. As well as her story, I also wanted to talk about the entrepreneurial journey that she's been on in a similar way to how we've done on previous podcasts with Prue Leith and Liz Earle, because I truly believe in the power of expert mission-led businesses to ignite sustainable change. It's partly why I'm taking a sabbatical and focusing on the app, the podcast, the nonprofit stuff as well. Uh, And on that note, our podcast recipe of the week, a recipe that reflects the topic of conversation on the pod, is the medicinal veggie broth that you can find on the app. The link is in the show notes. You can get a seven-day free trial, absolutely free. And uh, we talked about soups quite a bit on this episode, and this is the perfect embodiment of our chat so you can check that out and i will also uh, put it up on the newsletter that you can subscribe to at thedoctorskitchen.com where we give you something to eat a recipe something to listen to read or watch every week that will hopefully help you lead a healthier happier week it's mindfully curated and we've got some really good feedback on that with a really engaged audience so thank you so much for people who send me messages on that and i'm trying to get back to all of them but for now i really hope you enjoy this lovely conversation with jane clark great we're gonna have a great conversation i'm really looking forward to this you know it's so funny when we chatted before, uh, after we were introduced uh, via Pru. Uh, I just really wished we just recorded that because that would have been a really yeah. good podcast in itself. You know, like yeah. learning a lot about you and uh, your experiences and um, what you're up to now, which I think is fantastic. I'm constantly asked about it, and I'm like, I can only do a few things at a time, so it's lovely to have people like yourself with that wealth of experience championing what is a really, really important topic. Um, So yeah, I thought we could just repeat that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Let's rewind. (laughs) Whereabouts are you based at the moment then? So home is Cumbria. Mm. So I did a COVID move with my daughter Mm. because they have fantastic broadband, but don't tell anyone about that. Uh, So I can remotely (laughs) support my patients and run everything that I do from the hills and Rather crazily, I'm a bit of a wild swimmer and a walker. So for me, that's my tonic. So Cumbria provides a backdrop for that, which is great. Fantastic. Fantastic. We'll we'll take us back to the start. You you, uh, sent your lovely book, Nourish, that I was reading it and I had to read the front and I realized it was written in like 2010. And the information in it is so relevant to today. Um, it's wonderfully written. It's super, super uh, uh, rich in, in resources. Um, but but let, let's start with your sort of professional history in your career, because it's spanned over is it 30 years now. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I can add that out if you like. <laughs> yeah, uh, three, three, 30 years. Yes, it has. It's been a long time, but actually I am so excited now in my 50s about what we're about to achieve, but we'll come on to that. So for me, I guess the start was really with my Auntie May, who is very dear in my heart. And you'll forgive me if on this conversation um, I get a bit emotional because there's very key people in my life that have been really... um, 
at the forefront of why I do what I do. And Auntie May was the first and she was the aunt that my sister and I always liked to stay with in Stoke-on-Trent um, because she had fantastic big sort of double beds with loads of duvets. And so we'd snuggle into the double bed and then in the mornings we'd get wafts of homemade jam and crumpets. And Auntie May was always treating us with beautiful food. And, you know, if you just had toast and jam, it would be toast on the fire, homemade jam. And that was really my start of realising that food was love and affection and a very sensual thing as well as a physiological and a necessity. So that was sort of foodie background. And then my late dad was a chemistry teacher. And so our home life was fascination of science. And, Mm. you know, in those days, way back when, we had the chemistry lab in the garage. So it was that real sort of intrigue of what goes on in the human body, what goes on in the chemistry lab. And I put together those two key passions of my passion for food and my intrigue and love of science and went to do dietetics and I went to Leeds and I could wax lyrical. (laughs) Um, But I thought that I would come out of university with an amazing medical knowledge and you have to have that as a practitioner. And that actually surprises people because people say, oh, it's just food. You know what? How how can you go wrong with food? Mm. But we both know you can go really wrong with Mm. food if you don't know what's going on in the human body. So for me, learning all that medical side, and then I thought, well, I'll come out with a great skill of cooking and to be able to inspire people to to eat really well. But boy, it's not really changed. And it was a dreadful four years. And I came out with knowledge, but no passion. And another thing for me was that from the age of 15, right the way through my university years and through to my mid-twenties, I also was incredibly unwell as a teenager and had to spend about a quarter of my life in that time in hospital. So I knew what awful food was like in NHS hospitals. That's not me knocking the NHS. Private hospitals are no different. But food was never the thing that I look forward to in my recovery. Mm. And my mum was the first one to bring flasks of soup. So I also knew what it was like to be a patient. So it's really been a combination of passion of food, medical knowledge, and also knowing that I wanted to do things differently that has brought me to this place. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the the start of that story uh, uh, w- with the crumpets. I can almost smell that uh, myself, actually, with uh, those memories. I mean, I, I, I used to love crumpets uh, when I was a kid as well and like jams. And my mum would always make like weird and wonderful concoctions. I mean, she still does. She still makes pickles and jams and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think it, it's interesting where people who are in this space come from a foodie background, like that real love of food. And you can really tell in the writings and the recipes and everything else, because that's kind of like it's flavor first and then there's functional benefits as well. And I think that's why we'll get into a little bit later with regard to your, your functional um, products, about how important that is to, to, to get through because it's more than just nourishment is actually uh, uh, about flavor, about the pleasure of, of eating as well. Yeah, it is because life is about pleasure. And obviously when someone's going through a tough time, which is a big area that I concentrate on now, it, if you don't have flavor and you don't have that appetite, mm. you're get, you're really coming from a very tricky place. And 
It was when I was 25 and I was at last well enough to start crafting my career properly because I'd really pulled myself through university being incredibly unwell but but really determined and when you're a teenager and you're unwell you go one of two ways you either get really sort of downtrodden by illness or you become incredibly tenacious and I became incredibly tenacious and driven and so I started to work with patients who are living with the the cloud of HIV and AIDS And I had a lovely choreographer called Patrick who had Carposi sarcoma. And that's a tumour in the mouth. And I was looking after him and I was visiting him in hospital. And Patrick had a really poor appetite. You know, often when you're going through different treatments, whether it's cancer, dementia, but for him it was his AIDS treatment, was annihilating his appetite. And what he used to love me to do was to sit on the bottom of his bed and talk about the meals that I'd eaten. Mm. And I said, Patrick, isn't that torture for you? And he said, no, because the way that you talk about food just makes me believe that I will be able to eat again. And so I used to do that. So whether it was, you know, just a simple soup or something. So we would talk about food and then it would just tempt his appetite. And then towards the end of his life and actually at the very end of his life, I asked him what he would love me to bring for him. And he said, I'd love a punnet of strawberries. I'd love one of my last memories to be a beautiful English strawberry. And so I brought the strawberries in. And so he shared that lovely moment. He he could hardly manage a mouthful, but just the smell, the taste on his lips was something that we shared and there were no words. It was that pure connectivity. And then I was disciplined by the hospital and they said, you shouldn't have brought something in from home. He's at risk, you know. And of course, we know when someone's vulnerable, we have to take risk very seriously. Mm. But at the end of the day, I said it was a risk. And this life's, his life was more important to share that moment. And I just thought, I've got to do things differently. You know, mm. we are going down a real rabbit warren if we're prioritizing something going through and uh, processing versus the emotional connection with someone and that's everything that I stand for yeah yeah that that resonates with me quite a lot I mean working in quite a process driven system where you're bound by rules and you're not really encouraged to think for yourself or step outside of those yeah it it's tough for people who have that natural tenacity and that natural sort of you know drive uh to want to do things differently to bend over backwards for people to you know ensure people are, uh, that 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 very story um you know described so beautifully uh it, it's it's tough for people like us <laughs> yeah it is yeah because you're you're right up against a, an establishment a mm. way of doing things and you know, I've written the book Nourish, but that's my ninth book. Mm. And my first book, I, I almost dedicated to my university professor. You know, had they not said that I couldn't do it, I would never have done it. Yeah. You know, everything that I've done and my honorary doctorate was given. I'm just thinking, I've done what I've done because you said I couldn't. Yeah. yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm a red rag to a bull. But you have to have amazing tenacity and courage because also as a writer as a fellow writer we know when we start hitting hard certain areas of the food industry boy you can be under threat you know another example of that was when I did the big school meals campaign with Jamie Mm. 
And he, I struck a friendship with him when Jamie wrote his second book. Imagine how long ago that was. Yeah. And he, he came and found me and said, I gather you're a food-loving nutritionist. And I said, yes, I am. He said, wow. He said, you know, they're normally sort of either diet sheets or wheatgrass juice and alfalfa sprouts. And here you are having a you know, little, little cheese souffle or a, you know, little panna cotta or something. And I, so we struck up a friendship. And when Jamie said that he wanted to take on the school industry, the food that was being served to our children, I said, you're going to have to have some guts for this one because you're going to poke the piece. And he said, talking of which, he said, what are you up to in the next few years of your life? So I was Jamie's battering ram and <laughs> I actually got death threats delivered by a certain well-known Twizzler manufacturer. Mm. Um, and they said, if you don't stop, stop knocking our Twizzlers, basically they'll knock me off. Oh and I God. just thought, and that was delivered to my home. That's, it was a letter. Yeah. And I just thought, we're making a difference. And if anyone thinks that the politics of food is any less scary than the alcohol industry, the tobacco industry, mm. armaments, it is big time. So you have to have guts. So luckily I, I grew my grey hairs early on in life, so no one can really tell <laughs> whether it's having an impact or not. It sounds like you had some, uh, you got some battle scars that have definitely probably put you in better stead today so you can take on new challenges. But still, that, that's got to have been scary. I mean, how, how are you dealing with that stress at the time? I mean, I, I'm sure you had some support from, from Jamie himself and, and the organization, but that, yeah. I mean, that, that's really bad. Yeah, it is. It is. It was very scary. And yeah, I, I drew my comfort from the simple things in life that like going back to mum and dad, you know, whether it was just stopping and having a meal or going for a walk. I lived in London at that time. And I think the greatest thing that I can ever recall myself is turning off tech and just going and earthing. And music is a big passion for me. So mm. I played the piano and violin from an early age. So for me, again, just escaping and just taking it out on the piano or playing the violin was the way that I could just keep going. Yeah, yeah. I want to try and keep some chronology to our discussion because you've done so many different things and I, I can imagine it's going to get a bit confusing for myself and the listener. So you, you mentioned earlier that you were, um, you, you had some health issues in your, in your teens. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yes, I'm happy to. I had really bad endometriosis so much so that, um, it would have, the endometrium, mm -hmm. which we know is uh, the, the cells outside the womb, obstructed my bowel. So I would obstruct every month. Oh, wow. So um, I was having to take incredibly heavy painkillers and they annihilated my appetite. And the extreme pain was just, um, I was on morphine-based drugs, you know, for years and years off and on. And again, they have an impact on the body. So... But I was determined that I wouldn't let that define me. And I had probably about 15 surgeries wow. to try and sort it out um, because I was desperate to be a mum. And so they kept on saying to me, the only thing we can do is just have a hysterectomy. And I was, you know, I was 20, I was 22. And to consider that was an enormous thing. But then I got to the age of 25 and... 
it was a defining moment when I was in hospital. I was acutely obstructed and I was on nil by mouth and my dad came to see me and I was high as a kite on morphine, unable to eat anything. And he sat on the bottom of my bed and he burst into tears mm. and it was seeing my dad just show that emotion and I realised I couldn't go on any longer in the way that I was. So I had my major surgery, had the hysterectomy um, and then went backpacking in Thailand and went and got my love of food back and got bought a new story back. And that's something I work very hard with my patients on is because I never, ever wanted to be defined as someone that was unwell. And that's a big thing that I try and carry through every bit of work, even if you're unwell don't tilt your head, don't treat someone just as if they've got no voice. Yeah. And so I went and found my voice and then set up my practice. So yeah. a lot of my experiences as a teenager and early 20s have driven me to do what I do. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, again, I think similar stories that I hear from people in this industry comes from either personal or very close family issues that have inspired them to look at things differently. Um I know my own issues with uh, my heart condition when I first became a junior doctor over 12 years ago now. Um, actually, no, it's 13 years ago. Wow. Uh, so, uh, that gave me the experience of being a patient and the simple things that we take for granted as medics. And it, it was a real transformative moment for me, actually, because just three months earlier, before being admitted into the medical assessment unit and being, you know, uh, stays overnight and all the electrophysiology studies and everything else, I was walking into the ward, swinging around my stethoscope, having a chat with all the consultants and nurses, feeling like, you know, I've made it. I've, you know, done six years of med school and I know what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden, bam, I'm in the patient bed myself. And I'm next to other patients and I can understand and feel that vulnerability and that embarrassment of being a patient. And no matter how much we try and empathize with people, it's very hard to understand that without going through it, uh, going through it yourself. Um, so yeah, that, that, that I, I feel in your story must've been incredibly powerful. And I'm so, you know, the, the way you've kept that through, uh, your your private consults as well, and what's what has essentially inspired you to do more. Um, I mean, it, it, it says 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 itself, I guess, isn't it? In terms of um, uh, what what you've done th thus far. Yeah, and I think it's rather like there's a lovely quote about friendship: is a true friend is someone who asks how you are and waits for the answer. And I think we could do an enormous campaign within healthcare professionals mm. to say that, you know, ask how a patient is, but don't then go on to the advice or this prescription or the diet sheet or, because I was told off again for just talking to patients for too long. Really? And I said, if you, yeah. Oh my God. And that was way back, you know, we're going back many years. And I just said, if you don't listen, how are you going to be able to help? Because it's, and actually that's something I feel that we've lost over the last couple of years in I've been incredibly lucky to be able to still support my patients and the demand is huge now for people to know what how how can they help themselves they can help a friend but I've always thought that and it was a conversation actually with our mutual friend Prue when we were sitting around having supper at hers one evening and we're having one of those great debates of 
the challenges in the NHS and doctors don't have enough time and, you know, no one has enough time. And I actually just said it. I just said, actually, I don't agree. I said it takes no less time or no more time to listen for a few seconds because it's that thing when I've been seeing people in face to face, which is what we've lost. It's that throwaway comment as they leave the the room or that slight look that they give you. And it's that it's being in tune with that. And I'm not saying that we all have to spend an hour seeing a patient. Our systems can't cope with that, but just stop and listen. And I think the way that we have lost that way to communicate with people, to me, is one of the most damaging areas of healthcare that we've lost. Mm -hmm. If we got that back, and we know, I've got a friend going through her cancer treatment at the moment. It's about that communication. It's about communication of information, which if we get it right, it's really right. And if you get it wrong, we're, we're, we're sliding down a slope. So I've always tried to think, as you did, you know, what... How did I feel as a patient? How did that vulnerability affect me? And if we can listen as practitioners, that's one of the greatest things you can do. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an unpopular uh, opinion, I think, that we do have the time to do those little things. If you think about it from the reverse, you can really ruin a patient experience by saying the odd comment. You know, the, the, uh, well, I, I discussed this actually with... Um, uh, Dr. Deepak Ravindran, who is a pain consultant. And he said, one of the worst things that uh, a GP or an orthopod can say to a patient about their osteoarthritis x-ray of their knee is that your, your knee joint is bone on bone because it gives this visceral picture to the patient that, oh my God, it's literally pushing on each other and no wonder I'm in this much pain. And it actually heightens that pain experience. So yes. a simple thing like that can have a negative effect. I, I certainly believe in as little as it takes to say that it can have a converse positive effect as well. So, you know, the, there are little hacks and tricks that we can do within the constrained patient consultation yeah, to actually have a, a, a massive benefit. So yeah, it, it is an unpopular belief because I think as medics, and I've definitely gone through that myself, you know, we can look at this through one lens, which is the, the, the poor time, uh, the lack of staff, the lack of funds, et cetera, et cetera. But we can, we, we are resilient through different means as well. Yeah, and I and I deeply respect that place that so many of us are in. Um, but I just also think that, as you say, those simple things, just stepping back for a second. And it was actually, it's my dad, he taught me when I was 13, he taught me chemistry at the same, I was at the school where my, both my parents taught. My mum was a music teacher and my dad was a chemistry teacher. And dad, who sadly passed at the end of last year, he, he lived around the corner from where he used to teach and it was beautiful to see so many pupils just knew my dad for the man who would just stop and think before he answered. Mm-hmm. And as a teacher, you know, that was something. And sometimes I just taking that second. So it's, but everyone, you know, is also, I think, a practitioner, another element of it is that you're a bit like a chameleon. So you just have to be that person in that psyche, in that space that your patient needs you to be. You know, if I'm thinking back from Patrick, the choreographer, right the way through to a young mom who's just had a diagnosis of early stage breast cancer, mm. right the way through to a city exec who's 
sort of got a high cholesterol, you know, you have to, you'll hear in my voice, the, the voice changes according to how you have to be. And I think, again, just knowing those subtleties of of communication. and But I, a starting point going back to food, I often ask at the beginning, beginning of a consultation or is for a patient, what's your favourite food? And it normally completely throws them because they think I'm going to come on and go, right, you mustn't have X, Y, and Z. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah, but what, what do you really love to eat? Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's, are we going from this place? So, so back to your story. So, um, uh, you, you, you've had your major <laughs> procedure. Um, you've headed off to Thailand. You've, you know, reinvigorated your love of food. Um, what, what's next on, uh, on on Jane's journey? What what happened thereafter? So, I came back, set up my practice, uh-huh. which was in Chelsea. This is one of the first private practices I, in the UK. Is that right? Yes, it yeah. was. It was the first private dietetic practice, and. It was in a lovely street just off King's Road and it was a beautiful house and I couldn't afford to have a flat in London as well as a consultation room. And also because I I was determined that it would have lovely squatchy sofas and nice big bowls of fruit and nice curtains and things. So it was a perfect place and I'd not realised and it was only when I was given my doctorate a couple of years ago um, and my parents were both able to be at the ceremony and I was giving my acceptance speech and said, you know, it was when I was uh, sleeping on the floor of my practice <laughs> and I saw my mum just go, hang on, because I couldn't afford rent um, for six months. So I slept on the floor of my practice. So created the practice, set myself the goal of by the age of 30, I would write my first book. I'm always goal driven. Um, so I wrote my first book. That was a bestseller. And then the Observer Guardian came after me and said, we want you to write about health alongside Nigel Slater. What a blissful job that one is. <laughs> uh, so I very happily wrote for the Observer and Guardian for a few years with the wonderful Alan Jenkins. And then the Times launched Body and Soul. It was a fantastic health section. So they took me over there and then Bell on Sunday and then went back to the Times because they were struggling. And then Paul Dacre came after me and he said, we want you to write for the Daily Mail and love it or hate it. It had and still has an amazing presence. And Paul came after me and actually I was the only female columnist who had a twice a month meeting with him, with Paul. And you can imagine yeah. shaking you know, me is going in and, but we had eight and a half million readers in those days. So I was a columnist. Uh, So I am continually writing books and seeing my patients and working with Jamie on his campaign. And then um, the very handsome, gorgeous David Beckham came after me to help him with his football academy. That's a tough job as a woman, I can tell you. (laughs) Not. Um, And so that was, that was amazing to work with. Oh, that was probably when I was about 33. Oh, wow. That's yes. amazing. So you were literally headhunted by David Beckham. I was, yes. And I was one of the, you know, the, when the, the boys played in Baden-Baden, I was only, I was the only female that was allowed into the hotel. <laughs> I, so I rang my, I rang my nephews from the, the hotel in Baden-Baden and said, guess where I am? I'm in the, I'm in the England team football That's team hotel. And they're going, oh, you're such a cool auntie. And so that was a, that was a great fun project. And so I helped him with his mm. academy and 
So I've been I've been really lucky that scattered throughout my 30 years of looking after patients, I, I just love being creative and challenging within areas where they need to be challenged. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's incredible. And so from that uh, private clinic that you were sleeping on the floor of, <laughs> I'm sure that you weren't sleeping on the floor for much longer after that, right? I mean, especially if you've got David Beckham knocking on your door. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've been very lucky. Uh, but, it, you know, in those days, you just had to take an overdraft out and, yeah. do, and do that. So, yeah, I got my flat and, yeah, I, it was, they were, but it was, it was, that was what was necessary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so we mentioned the Jamie Oliver story a bit as well. How, how long are you working on the school meals campaign? And I'd love your opinion on that, obviously. I mean, during COVID, we saw some pretty horrific um, uh, uh, examples of, uh, what would be classed as mismanagement, I guess, um, by, by the government and uh, uh, some famous footballers getting involved as well. Uh, w- yeah. What was the Jamie experience like and what were the barriers that you saw? And do you think anything has changed thus far or do you think we've, we've still got similar issues? Because it, certainly the mood amongst people that I've come across is is pretty somber when it comes to that that topic. I think sadly we're going back. We must be going back. How old's Maya? Maya's 19. Probably going back 15 years. Yeah. When it was started. And so I worked with Jamie and his team for a couple of years. And that was really the heyday of the project. And rather like the well-known Turkey Twizzler story, um, I'd go on Radio 5 Live and would be against or pitted against the mums who were just saying, you know, how dare you sort of criticise me for popping a burger through the, mm. the school gate for my child? You know, who do you think you are to start telling us that we're doing it wrong? And I said, firstly, we're not saying that we're doing it wrong, but we could do it better. And I think that was the, it was very disruptive. We galvanised amazing gravitas in certain schools you know, if we go back that to that time, school dinner ladies, people working in kitchens and schools were seen as the lowest of the low. Yeah. It's sadly where care home cooks and chefs are now seen, but that's something I'm changing. But in those days, you'd never have been on the BBC Good Food programme, Food and Farming Awards for a school meals dinner lady. You know, this is the legacy. We've bought, we've bought an amazing gravitas in certain areas so I think we have changed it for the better but boy there's a long way to go Mm. and it's heartbreaking to see what is going and what is not going on in many areas and actually during Covid I was in touch with this is a fantastic uh, charity up in Edinburgh that supports called the Spartans and they support children and young people in very deprived areas of Edinburgh who don't have the meals to put, have a a meal. And we donated thousands of drinks to go out there because I said, we need to, we need to make a difference. We're going through an incredibly tough time. So I think that sadly we needed the well-known footballer to, to step in and to shout again and say, in many, many areas, we are not doing it good enough. Mm. So we still need to keep pushing and pushing. But 
we will have made a difference to certain young people's lives way back when. Mm. So that's great because they'll have seen that it makes a difference to what they put inside their bodies. So they'll be the teenagers now and they'll be the next generation of parents, but we need to do so much more. Yeah, yeah. I think listeners will know that I'm the kind of glass half full kind of guy. Uh, and, and I definitely look at like the Jamie Oliver story and people, I don't think people realize like how, A, how long ago it was and B, how few episodes, it was only a couple of episodes, something like that. And it had that much of an impact that we're still talking about it decades on. Um, and also, you know, that sort of understanding or the appreciation that what we feed our kids in school has a massive impact on attention, on their propensity for disease and the foundation for uh, their health going forward and, and why that's actually a, a, a massive investment, if you want to think about it in economic terms, into our NHS as well. And that, that lateral thinking is something that we really need to start doing a lot more, of, particularly in a post-pandemic world. Um, but yeah, it, it is obviously heartbreaking when you see what happens thereafter. We, we actually spoke to a few uh, organizations and charities um, last year, uh, including um, uh, Magic Breakfast and uh, Fair Share and a oh, few other people. Yeah, they're doing some really, really good stuff. And I just want to try and keep promoting them as much as possible and 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 pushing that sort of agenda because otherwise you know just fall to the wayside but i i think that that pivotal work uh that long ago is still what people refer to uh today and it's amazing to see and hopefully we can do the same thing with what you're working on now actually which i think perhaps doesn't get as much attention because people who are in vulnerable situations uh the elderly you know it's not as it's not as sexy, uh, if I'm being frank. Yeah, and it's it, it's not just the elderly too. Yeah. I think there have been some amazing stories over the last couple of years to highlight the fact that there are a lot of children, teenagers in care settings that deserve better. Mm. So, and I think going just going back briefly to the, what Jamie and what the School Meals Project did is it ignited people power. And that's incredibly powerful. And that's what I'm trying to do with Nourish, to mm. ignite people power. Because, yes, we can be sitting in our board meetings. We can be having campaign meeting after campaign meeting and opinion formers. And, yes, that's, that work is incredibly important. But equally, there's nothing like just galvanizing and empowering one person to step forward and actually to take, as my mum did with me, a flask of soup around to someone mm. or just show that gesture of food. So, and then you get that cascade. So people achieve an enormous things. So for me, nourishing people who are vulnerable has to be led through people power because that's that's the way that we'll, we'll change this world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us a bit about the foundations for the project that you're involved in now and what your focus is right now have, have we skipped any bit after that i know you, you've had such a colorful professional life uh, i don't want to make sure that we haven't forgotten anything because yeah <laughs> no I, th I think the i guess the the two elements probably we've skipped over which it really showed me that again that food can make an enormous difference is I adopted my daughter. Oh, yes. Please tell me about and that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Maya, having had the hysterectomy when I was 25, I I grieved and thought, you know, for me, it's my career. I can do everything. and But I, I don't need to be a mother. You know, I can 
be fulfilled. But there was always this little nag at the back of my mind. So I decided at the age of 30 to go down the process of adopting myself. And that took me around about five years. And I found my daughter, Maya, in India eventually. And she was five months old when I found her. Mm-hmm. And it took me another 10 months to get her back. And at the age of 15 months, she weighed three and a half kilos. Wow. Which, you know, is birth weight for many mm. babies over here. And Maya had really bad rickets and was very malnourished. And people have said, you know, gosh, she was lucky to land on the lap of a nutritionist. But in essence, I fed her as a mother. Mm. You know, I I instinctively, you know, I we formula fed for a whole year and then started the weaning process, which is something I feed back into my work now for parents who get really anxious about, but they haven't had broccoli by the age of eight months or, you know, this, you know, this parenting is you learn as you go along. And that's what I did as a nutritionist and mum to Maya. So you know, Maya now is 19 and a show jumper and really strong and healthy. But that showed me the difference food can make to a young child's life for me personally. And also knew what a huge, um, you know, that is a really exciting part for us to craft her recovery through food. And then my dad being diagnosed with frontotemporal lobe dementia around about 12 years ago. Mm-hmm was a really tough moment for me because I knew from my clinical work that dementia is a really cruel disease. And yeah, there are beautiful elements of our life that we share through music and food. Actually, my dad had an amazing sweet tooth. So he would always, when he came around for lunch, would just say, right, what's for pudding before he started eating the main course? And, and that's something that's very common with people living with dementia. And, and so I'd always tease dad and say, look, you've got to have your main course before your, your, your pudding. Um, but for me, seeing that, that element of deterioration for my dad and the way that swallowing was affected for him and for many of my patients, it took me back to what I was taught at university, which was we were taught that you just took a normal meal and bunged it in liquidizer and served it as a mush. And mm. I said, no way, Jose, I'm not having that for my dad. So luckily at that point, um, I I knew enough to know that as an example for swallowing, if we didn't know that the hardest thing for someone who struggles with swallowing is to actually swallow water. Mm. And you might think that's the easiest thing because the layman thinks there's nothing in a glass of water, but actually you need to make something slightly thicker to engage the muscles. So I started you know, looking after dad through that and... That's an area of education for people to know that when you're vulnerable and you have trouble swallowing, then knowing how you can influence the texture of something that then can help someone nourish themselves. So for dad, I was living and breathing it as his daughter, as well as always through the, my career. So that was that was a big driver to, to set up Nourish as I have done. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And so it, it sounds like you, from this personal experience, uh, with your father, obviously your clinical experience as well, and your daughter. When did the the light bulb moment occur that you're like, you know what, I need to create a company out of this. I need to, you know, try and fulfill a, a, a need because my experience of uh, drinks that are used for patients who have elements of dysphagia or um, 
don't have the energy to to consume enough um uh food to satisfy their needs it's pretty dire as well i mean it's i've, I've tried them they're, yeah. and they're not they're not lovely at all but they're, they're all we have essentially or all we used to have anyway when, when, when was that light bulb moment so that was when i i'd written the book nourish and I sneakily held on to electronic and digital rights. And I'd set up my website with lovely Nigel Slater-esque recipes and ideas and inspiration and information. And as you say, I, as a practitioner, I'd never, ever recommended um, the not very nice, well, horrid drinks out there. And, and I thought, actually, I want to do it. I, I need to now start putting the products out there that can really help support people. And met up with a very dear friend of mine, Micah Carhill. Now, Micah was involved in the setup of Green and Black's Chocolate right. with Joe Fairley yeah. and uh, Craig Sams. And I knew Micah and his taste buds are fantastic, his palate, you know, he's like the sommelier of, you know, the food world, really. And we met up in those good old days when, well, now, thankfully, we can re-meet, but we met up at St Pancras Station. And I said, Micah, I'd love to create a drink that has all the lovely ingredients within it. But also from the packaging, it looks inspiring and looks beautiful and with dignity. Because for me, I never wanted for my dad to be a perfect, uh, sort of a horrible plastic bottle with a, you know, purple lid and something that I wasn't proud of. And also, if you look at the list of the ingredients, it just scares the living daylight yeah. out of you. And I just said, we've got to do something that's really natural, has organic ingredients but tastes lovely because going back to the, the onto May days, if you can ignite someone's taste buds, you've got a chance of being able to support someone nutritionally. So he helped me create the drinks mm. and we had to fight really hard for it. And we're still fighting because you're, you're going up away against a wave of um, it's been done before. You know, this is how we've always done it. We've always just had those, drinks out there and I'm going but you can do it differently so you know we had to I had to cajole my food manufacturer you know if you as an example if you created a drink and you had to do a test run it normally would cost you about six thousand pounds to do a test run I was just 36 thousand pounds to oh, do wow. it because and I wanted you know the best Alfonso mangoes I wanted my Auntie Bay best raspberries and I was just going and so I had to convince my investors to say yes because that's what I would want I certainly wanted it for my dad, and that was really beautiful towards the end of his life to be able to just share those little, he loved his chocolate drink. And for me, I thought I've got nothing to lose and everything to gain because mm. I'd, you know, I'd fought the turkey twizzlers and the, the legislative people. I'm just thinking, right, you know, I'm going to now start taking on this whole world of when you're vulnerable and you're struggling to get calories, nutrients inside your body, we can do it much better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, I remember those purple. I mean, they still exist. You know, the the forteps and the entrails of the world. I, I know you probably can't say the words, but I can because it's my podcast. Um, but they are terrible, like really disgusting. I, you know, I've tried a whole bunch of them, and I remember I used to lament when I had to suggest them to patients on the ward as well because that you know I wouldn't have it myself, and I wouldn't want my my parents to have it either and your loved ones so the fact that you you know have, have created a product that's amazing i wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that entrepreneurial journey because a lot of people who listen to the podcast are really interested in their own ideas or perhaps they have had their own personal experience and they they don't know where to start so 
with your with your contacts obviously you had mika who's uh, sounds amazing um where wh- when did you actually start the process of okay investing your own money and then getting other investors on board and then actually that process okay okay this is my business plan this is what i want to try and achieve like and and have you always been that sort of entrepreneurial minded i guess you know from running your own clinic you know what it's like to run a business yes i've always had that um that goal to, yes, I set up my practice so I knew what it was like to sort of run an overdraft and start to sort of craft what does success look like in five years. So I, when I created the drink, I, yep, invested all my own money, took the risks. Luckily, it was just me and Maya. So, and my practice was able to support me whilst I was investing in the, um, the seed stage of my business and I met a really lovely man again probably what five years ago now who was really struggling with his eating and he became a friend and I told him what I was up to and he said I'll invest a hundred thousand pounds and I said what and I he said yeah I'll do it you know what you're about to do is amazing and so that started me, you know, on that sort of right someone else's and he actually did that without with a very loose business plan. You know, it was just and I do still see that now if I can get in front of someone and you rather like I do with a patient, you just talk to them and listen to them and see where they're coming from. And tragically, loads of people have been touched by the conditions that we now deal with with nourish so that there's always someone in somewhere in someone's story mm. that they see rather like you and me that we know what bad looks like so i've been very lucky that then after my seed investor i cajoled um a group of management consultants to help me with the business plan um i actually had been on sort of an enterprise allowance scheme uh, courses when i was living in nottingham as a teenager and knew it was a fantastic guy called Gordon McKenzie who taught me how to write a business plan but I needed a a really high you know I needed a proper business plan to then go after the hundreds of thousands of pounds which I've had to go after and actually through Gillian who works for me she used to work for one of my patients and he sadly passed from cancer and I met Gillian actually at a ballet class and she said oh you're Jane Clark aren't you and I said yeah I am and she said well you know I'll mutual contact has passed away and I wondered you know and we started working together which was really great and then she introduced me to people that would be interested because of everything that she'd seen her boss go through so I've been lucky that I've had private individuals who have really wanted to champion Mm -hmm. what we're doing with Nourish and then I did a small crowdfund during um the pandemic, the lockdown of last year. And actually now we're going to go for big investment because it's a really exciting time to be, to really now start making a, a big difference in a big way. Absolutely. So it, I'd say that, and actually I'm, I'm talking next week about how to be a female founder. And I there's one image that I'm just going to put up to start off with, and it's an image of a swan because you have the swan is on the top but the legs have to kick hard <laughs> underneath because it it's it's really hard you know it's without getting too much on the female founder but actually again it, it, that's played through in my professional life you know 
as a, a female in a very, it was male dominated medical world. Thankfully now it's changing. Um, but you also have to fight hard to, to pull the business through and to, to also protect the values that I hold really dear. So, mm. you know, we only ever use organic ingredients. We actually deliver to people's doors, which is one thing I was adamant about because, and I never wanted to come across of critical of medics and timings, but getting access to GPs, getting ac- access to prescriptions, advice, all of that side, I wanted to be able to get nourished drinks to someone's doorstep mm. because, and it's DPD, next day delivery, because if someone's struggling with their appetite, or needing that extra nourishment, they don't need it in four weeks' time when they can get an appointment. They need it now. Yeah. And also not being able to get out to the shops. So I've always, so now what I've loved is that the nourish boxes arrive on someone's doorstep and I want to build up that content, that sort of newsletter, that tactile, going back to my good old Daily Mail days when we had eight and a half million readers of print. You know, if you're going through a tough time, you don't actually want to spend all all the time online. Mm. You actually want something tangible. So we'll be doing newsletters and papers and and that side of things. Again, so for me, nourish is an element of that tactile, that sensory, but actually tackling a really serious issue, which is undernourishment. Yeah. I I mean, I love hearing about because I'm obviously interested in entrepreneurship and business, but I, I'm particularly interested in businesses with purpose who are in the health and wellness sphere and are founded by experts, people who have that experience, that that tangible um, uh, experience of of working with patients that can essentially weave through whatever products or services that they're creating, like yours, for example. And I also think about this through the lens of, okay, what is the goal of the product itself? So, you know, Nourish comes across as something that is so needed. Like, you know, it's something that every medic, every person within healthcare knows instantly. Oh, yes, those things that we really need to like improve. What what are the wider aspirations of the brand? Um, Where else do you think there is a need uh, to improve the the nutrition elements that you can essentially address next after the um, the the fortified drinks. I think the next certainly the next five years of my life are going to be really accessing everyone who's going through a tough time with nourishment. So that whether that's a teenager, that's a young mom, that's someone who's in a care setting, that's someone who's isolated, not being cared for at home. You know, there are millions of people in this country and beyond. Mm. You know, we will go international because also we know in certain many, many countries, again, the chemical led way of dealing with undernourishment has been the only way that they've seen that it's possible. Mm. So I've definitely got international aspirations with that. And we've had approaches for that, which is really exciting. And then, of course, there are going into savoury products and different things that um, can really, again, with those touch points of natural, organic, you know, we, we, we've we got a lovely pipeline in the workings because I don't just stop at a drink. You know, it's when someone is struggling with nourishment, they need so many different products to inspire them. and And also, you know, if we go back to 
my mum bringing in soup. You know, I'd, I've had so many patients in hospital over the years that I just say to their friend, just take in a lovely flask of soup. Mm. You know, we go back to the traditional Jewish soup of chicken soup. We know that evocative side. And actually that was something I, because I still see patients because I love it. I, I really love that minute when you just can see someone's eyes just light up and, I had a patient actually the day before yesterday and he's going through his cancer treatment and he, as we both know, when you're going through cancer treatment, the treatment, particularly chemotherapy, attacks your rapidly dividing cells. So you often get diarrhea and you can't hold on to much food and he's using the drinks, which is amazing. But also I said, look, having something warm and easy to digest, like a lovely soup is better for you than having one of your juices that friends might have said, oh, you need to be juicing. You need to be getting all these sort of carrots and alfalfa sprouts and beetroot into your system. Well, if you put that inside someone who's going through chemotherapy, you've got a cascade and so you lose all the nourishment. So again, just that that light bulb moment of one patient just saying actually something like a traditional chicken soup with every fresh ginger and loads of fresh herbs in it can just soothe the gut. And that means you're not on the loo all the time. And it means then you can hold on to the nourishment. So there's so many different products that we will go into. But one step at a time. That's yeah. what I still try to tell myself. Every yeah, morning. yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I know I, I the feelings mutual definitely because you just want to do so many things because you know like how many issues there are and how you can fix things. And you know, you, you just gotta sort of pace yourself, I guess, uh, haven't you, with uh <laughs> with all these ideas. Um I, I wanted to ask you just to close, um about the, the the current state of nutrition within the NHS. Obviously, everyone knows that, that there are issues there. There are some quite interesting developments with the hospital food review that Peru is involved in, um, uh, public sector uh, catering conferences that are quite bullish on the ideas of chefs being trained uh, alongside nutritionists and you know providing um, a choice. Uh, it seems like there is some energy and that the workforce are becoming galvanized with um, with ways in which they can improve nutrition. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do, are, are you are you positive about it, or do you, do you think we've got quite a long way to go before we actually see systemic change? Like you, I've always been a glass is half full empty. <laughs> so, and I wouldn't have got to where I've got to if I was the opposite way, you know. So, I think that having gone through the brutality as we have done for the last couple of years, I do think now we have a golden opportunity to, and I do think we'll get there because there are some amazingly driven people who have also made the conscious decision, whether it's through loss of a loved one or a friend and seeing that what bad looked like, that they actually now want to really make a big difference. So I do think within the NHS and going also the care setting that if we can educate chefs also give them that connection that community Mm. to know that they're not isolated within a care home kitchen and there are some you know amazing pioneers that are politically really stamping their feet and let's be really honest before the pandemic no one talked about care homes Mm. yeah or if they did it was in a really dismissive yet all of a sudden we're all caring about them. You know, they were there before and we were incredibly lucky with dad's care home because he 
came to the stage where he couldn't be supported in the way that we wanted him to be supported. And he went into the care home for the end of his life. And he ended up being there just a few months. And for me, we were really lucky that the care home allowed us to go and be by his side for the last couple of weeks of his life to sleep alongside him, take it in turns and to bring in the food to to show him love and affection through the ways that we wanted to. And for me, that's, we can really shout from the rooftops and say there are amazing care homes out there. So I do believe we will get there because now we've got a golden opportunity to do so. And so let's just do it. Yeah. You're such an inspiration, Jane. (laughs) And it's so wonderful to hear about your journey and your stories and what you're up to now and how you're just really not, you're not losing any pace or energy. So it's great. It's uh, it's super inspirational. I'm sure a lot of (laughs) listeners will will really uh, appreciate you sharing so much today. Well, it's been lovely to do it and actually it's just it's like you know it's a kindred soul so it's great to talk it through I really hope you enjoyed this week's podcast with Jane. You can check out all of her links uh, on the show notes at thedoctorskitchen.com. You can sign up for the weekly newsletter where I send you something to eat, listen to, watch or read. It's mindfully curated and designed to hopefully allow you to lead a healthier, happier week. And of course, you can check out all the recipes on the app. Uh, The show notes will have the link to it. And uh, we're going to be adding so many more features over the next couple of months i'm really excited about it and i hope you can join me on that journey too otherwise i will see you here next time